Um, there's a couple of things that have come into why I'm choosing to share the message that I'm going to share this morning. Um, last week, after last week's message, my wife said, man, that was the most brilliant sermon I've ever heard in my life. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. What, what, but she said, though, was I was actually, as you guys know, quite stunned to have my wife come after having, like, no sleep for two days because she said, I'm really interested in what you have to share about rest. By the way, I've thought more about that. Rest is not just a person. It's a place, and it is um, a practice of our life. So there's, a, you know, it's an actual place. It's an actual practice of our life. And it's one that we want to embrace. I may say more about that, but what she was talking about is the fact that over the last couple of weeks, there have been some key words that we've kind of focused on and, and noticing that they're words that actually begin at the beginning of the, of the, of the scriptures in Genesis 1. The, the first one being that what God created, you know, he showed you, oh man, what is good in the midst of when we're looking at things around us that are not good. And that we are gospeling when we proclaim the reality that there is a God who is good, who reveals good. Amen? And that, that idea of good is a house that is filled with abundance. And last week we looked at the idea of rest, that it's actually a place of protection and care uh, that, that we can settle ourselves into. And it's the place that, that God created this space in created order for a reason that it's actually to be a part of our life uh, that he invites us toward. It's not just a, a break from being fatigued. So uh, this week, I'm, you know, I'm looking in wonder and in awe because, as my friend Hammer put it this morning, he said, I'm so jealous of you. I said, I, I, I can't describe to you what this has been like this week to uh, be able to hold babies in my arms. And, you know, there's something about this that, that sparks um, wonder in, in everyone. Whenever we see a beautiful baby, you know, a newborn baby, there isn't a, I, hardly a person that walks up and goes, oh, you know, dull and boring, move on. Um, there's wonder that's involved here. It's, it, it's just, there's so much there. And so more than once, um, I've caught my wife in tears. I've been in tears. Uh, as we're holding these little amazing babies, I got a picture of Denise with all four of the grandbabies on the front porch. It was fun. Um, and, you know, begrudgingly drug the rest of the kids, like, can we just take one picture? Dad, you know, you guys are always wanting to take pictures. I know, but we want to. Thank you for participating. And there's a story that God is telling. This is key to gospeling, is paying attention to our lives. Is everybody hearing what I'm wanting to share this morning? The title that I've given this message this morning is from Genesis 131, What Kind of Human? Because here's the thought that began to hit me. Denise said, are you going, you're doing a series of messages out of like Genesis? I said, I, no, I really hadn't planned that, but well, maybe, I don't know. And I came back to verse 31 of Genesis 1, God saw all that he made, and behold, now in the previous five days, he makes what he makes, and he says, it was good. In verse 31, last verse of chapter 1, he said, it was very good. And again, most theologians have concluded, uh, rightly so, I believe, that 
what, what we're seeing reflected here is that not only the, this sense of the completion of created order, but that God has made man in his image. Verse 27. Um, because, again, what did, what did he just call very good? What he called very good is humanity. And verse 27, it says, Let us make man in our own image, and in the image of God he made them. So that word for image, which is, again, the, it's a difficult Hebrew word, to sell them. Uh, it's hard to pronounce, uh, but it was the Greek, or the, the uh, yeah, he was Greek. <laughs> it was a, the early church father and theologian, Thomas Aquinas, who gave this term, term that was directly related to this word of image. He gave it imago deo. Now, you might have seen that in other places. A lot of uh, theologians have leaned into this idea that that's actually begins to communicate the reality of something that's deeply theological. So being image bearers uh, is that we bear his image. Now, in the original language, this has lots of different implications that we come from the ground, that there's blood involved, all kinds of different things. But really, the best word that I think communicates that word for image is found in Peter Pan. When he's trying to grab his shadow, right? You, you remember the first part of Peter Pan? No, I'm not. I thought everybody would track with me on that one. Like, yeah, I've seen it. Okay, the sh it's the idea of shadow. So this is, and again, is something that I think we need to pause and ponder. That God, the unseen God up to this point, says, we're going to make man in our image. So this God that is filled with goodness, revealing his goodness, a bounty and love in all of created order, decides that he is going to allow something of himself to become visible in mankind and literally to hold up a mirror, if you will. That is a deeply powerful theological thought. The image bearers, this is who we are. So up to this point in created order, so suddenly God, who isn't visible, allows himself, an image of himself to be seen in created order. And this is why the incarnation, Jesus coming and taking on humanity, again, deserves thought early and often. It is the central message of our uh, theology, it's our, the central message of the gospel, that God becomes man. It's here where, where Christ comes to take on humanity that we actually get a picture of what God the Father looks like. So we have a mirror in Christ, according to the Hebrew writer, the perfect representation of the Father. So you want to see what dad looks like. You want to pick up, pick up a mirror and look at it. We look at Jesus. And so it's in Christ that we see what the Father looks like. It's in Christ, however, that we see what humanity looks like. This is where this message sometimes gets lost for those of us who grew up, like me, in deep Reformed theology 
where we heard early and often how depraved we are. Yet it's James who writes it this way. You know, a, a person who is a who hears the word and doesn't do it's like a man who looks in a mirror and forgets what he looks like. You you're familiar with that? Let me give you a different paraphrase of that those words in James 1, 23 and 24 out of the mirror translation because I believe they give a correct representation of it. The difference between a mere spectator and participator is that both of them hear the same voice and perceive in its message the face of their own genesis reflected as in a mirror. So as I look at the word, what is the word? I'm not talking about the scriptures here. I'm looking at Jesus, who is the living word, and I begin to see this is who I am. And this is how it's worded in this translation. They realize that they're actually looking at themselves. And again, some soon forget. Now, on an occasion, I have found some things in early church fathers that I felt like was worthy enough to simply rehearse. Today, I want to share something from a uh, Episcopal, or charismatic Episcopal pastor who's a strong, solid voice, has a strong theological voice. His name is Dr. Kenneth Tanner. Uh, he's a pastor out of Rochester Hills, Michigan. He runs in the same circles as the guys I listen to, like Branson and Greg Boyd and these other friends. Um, he shared a message on Ascension Sunday, and, it, and I'm going to follow it with another message about humanity. And in the Ascension message, he shared this, this just this past May um, about humanity that God calls good. And so it's written in a kind of prose. And so I want to invite us back to that simple thought, what did God call very good? And again, I'm, I'm confessing to you openly that I've heard over and over there's nothing good in me. The sort of human who ascends. Imagine a human life born into the world the way that all we who are born into the world, coated in serum and blood, vulnerable to all the things that bring us harm, laid on a mother's breast. Imagine a human life like most humans into a poor family with parents who sweat for their daily bread. A human life threatened from the start by homicidal mania. Imagine a human life lived as a child in exile, in a land where they are strangers, where a different language is spoken, absent a community of trust and care. Imagine when Jesus comes home as a young boy to the village of his parents. People stare at him. Whisper, bastard. Schoolboys taunt him and ask him if he Mary knows his real father. Imagine a mother with arms that console, with a voice that teaches him to love the scriptures and to pray the psalms. Imagine a human life that begins to see itself 
in the words read, in the words prayed. Imagine that the word is so inscribed in this human's body, mind, and heart that the greatest teachers of his day hear the voice of wisdom that inspires the prophets and gives harmony to the Psalter. Imagine a human life that gradually becomes aware that its life is somehow identical with a life that makes suns and galaxies, orchids, sequoias, eagles, and panthers, that gives breath to all that flies and swims and crawls, a human who is one with the architect of atoms and cells, the kindler of stars and the molder of mountains. The other humans, including his mom, stepdad, are not quite so sure to what, as, what to make of his bewildering humility. He's always putting others first, always waiting on them and everyone in the smallest of ways without caring if anyone notices the kindness for him. At times, they feel as though they ought to bow in reverence because his words and acts are so full of life and hope and healing. Imagine a human life lived for decades in obscurity where at the end of most days, muscles are tired and achy, shaking sawdust from his hair and rinsing grime from his arms, setting a table for his now widowed, vulnerable mother who brought him into the world, who taught him so much and now has him to protect and provide for her. Then one day this woman asked him to do for others what he has on occasion done for her, to make wine where there is no wine. And then there is a baptism and a sojourn into the wilderness and a transfiguration. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead live again because his spit and voice and breath are not only human, but divine. Imagine a human that does not seek equality with God, but is among all humans a servant. Imagine a human life that refuses the sword and tells us to love our enemies. Imagine a life that does human things divinely and divine things humanly. Imagine that living this kind of human life leads the church of his time and the rulers of his moment to plot against him, to snuff out his way of becoming human, to shame anyone in the future from even trying to be human as God is human. Imagine a human that forgives our entire species even as we reject and despise and murder God. Imagine that when this human dies from our violence, he does not stay dead, but that in death and beyond, he stays human. He so rearranges the structures of death that they are now instead a portal to the life of God for everyone who dies with him. Imagine a human life 
that journeys to hell with the dead and preaches as a dead man to those bound in chains that as he speaks, the fetters that held them are broken by love. Imagine a human life I've just described and all the ways I've described it appears embodied again after death, freed from death, liberated from any threat that can limit his promises to us and to the world. Now imagine that this sort of human life that ascends to the right hand of God, imagine that what it means to live this sort of human life and to die this sort of human death is to ascend, to become forever the measure of what it means to be God and what it means to be human. For this Son who is given to us descends to become human and ascends to remain human. And despite all appearances to the contrary, His way of being human, His way of humility, is now the way things are with the world. And now death has no power over His ascended life or ours. His humility causes our humanity to ascend with Him. So right now, what is truest about you and me is that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That we are seated in Christ next to the Father. That we are in Him there. And that He is in us here. And that with Him we are one with the Father by the Spirit. This is but one facet of the great mystery of ascension, that complex, neglected, beautiful, and consequential reality that Christians trust and that we celebrate. Have patience. In time, God is kind. He's kind with us and will help us to know this reality and to live this reality now and forever. Amen? I'm going to push pause there. So what does it mean that we begin to discern the kind of human that God is? Well, I think it be, it, the first thing it ought to do is for us to give pause for a moment to what he called very good, so much so that he became. Unfortunately, 40 years ago, there was a group of about 150 translators that, again, a large number of them highly influenced by the Reformed Calvinist tradition that took one word in the New Testament and that set something a course that for many of us has been very difficult to extrapolate out of our thinking. And that word is the word sarx, or it's S-A-R-X in Greek, 
or sarkos, however you want to pronounce it, you know, according to the flesh. It means the flesh. What they did is they gave that meaning two words that shows up in millions and millions of Bibles in the NIV translation as sinful nature. It has had profound impact and influence in how we begin to think because in that unfortunate, I will say tragic, translation, we communicate a basic distortion in our identity that you'll never be get free of because you are at your very core not good. I've heard this repeated over and over, and I want to say with clarity. Scripturally, it's not true. Theologically, it's not true. What God made, He declared as very, what? What? Very good. Let's say it again. What? Very good. So much so that He becomes what He made. I want to now, I want to conclude this morning by just sharing a, a couple more thoughts, again, from Dr. Kenneth Tanner. You do not have a sin nature. You have a flesh that has a bent to sin. There's a big difference, okay? You have a human nature afflicted by sin and infection that is at war with your good creation in the divine image. Sin is anything that opposes the love of God forever is, and humans are made in the image of that love. So love is elemental to the human person. Sin, though alien and hostile, is like cancer everywhere humans are. Starts, you can see right in the toddler room. Doesn't matter what country you're in. Your participations in evil are not who you are. They are tragic denials of your created human goodness, a deep work in the clay by the love that God is. All who share human nature have an original good beginning, a divine image that rests within humanity. This is the meaning. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there's something else. Christians confess that God shares our common humanity in Christ Jesus. God is human. What it means to be human and what it means to be God is forever tied in one person. And this human is sinless. The sinlessness of Jesus is greater than the collective sin of humanity. And his life story of perfect love is the measure of every human. Sin denies and obscures our true nature. We are made in the image of love, not hate. In the image of humility, not pride. In the image of generosity, not greed. While the sin of our ancestor Adam has 
wide-reaching, destructive consequences in everyone, everywhere. Christians are the ones who trust that the obedient life of the human God is far, far greater than Adam's transgression. The effects of Christ's exemplary humanity will override every evil in us and in creation. This is Christian trust. And this changes the way we look at everyone. Jesus is the lens through which we view every human. The human nature is not inherently evil, but rather participates in an original created goodness that is wounded by sin, is a basic claim of the first Christians and our Judaic heritage. Please accept no substitutes. Sin does not belong to human nature. What I am about to write is plain, but maybe why it is why we miss it. God cannot become what is inherently evil. When God becomes human, he takes on human nature as he finds it. Subject to the condition of the fall, what has not been assumed has not been redeemed. But a good creation remains in every human, no matter how many layers of soot mar its incandescent reality. God becomes what God makes. And what God makes is always good. Let me push pause for a minute. This is why, beloved, I think we have to think deeply about the reality of these core truths. The incarnation, oh my goodness, it should just fascinate our minds again and again. God becomes what God makes, and what God makes is always good. Ancestral sin is real, and we see its effects everywhere in and all. We are sinners. We confess that every week in our liturgy. Sin is a power that afflicts us, no doubt about it. But it is important to recall that we are not our sins, that they are not our identity. They do not define the human person or any human. The human God defines humanity. And that is good news. Amen? I want to invite us this morning... As we think about the idea of the God who became and the God who ascended, and that according to Ephesians writer, chapter 2, we are now seated with him in the heavenly realms, that's the one who invited us to come to a table in confession. Not only of his death. See, oh, so many times I know that I've come to this table and it's, it's been kind of a self-lashing kind of thing, you know. I hope I'm worthy. You never were. But he is, and he's invited us. And now as we celebrate, we celebrate a new reality. 
I want to uh, I want to proclaim this one more time over us as we get ready to participate in the communion together. Um, that his in his work, he his work is so complete that it is complete for all of humanity. The sinlessness of Christ Jesus is greater than the collective sin of humanity, and his life story of perfect love is the measure of every human. Sin denies and obscures our true image. We were made in the image of love, not hate, in the image of humility, not pride, in the image of generosity, and not greed. So, beloved, as we confess this reality, what it means to be God is forever tied in the one person, Jesus Christ. What it means to become an actual human being is forever bound in him. So as we take of this communion together, we're proclaiming his life and his death, but we're proclaiming his new life and new death, right? That we're bound in his death. We, were, our, we, we literally died with him, and we're raised to life in him according to the scriptures. So I'm going to invite us to come, and if you would, to stand with me. I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me, if you would, as we close. And then we're going to come to communion together. If you came prepared to give, we want to tell you thank you again. We're grateful. Um, but let's pray this prayer together. Risen and ascended Christ, you surround us with witnesses and send us the counselor. Open our minds to understand the scriptures, O God, so that when sin cripples our hope, we may discover the freedom of your forgiveness. When suffering and death overtake our lives, we may know the joy of the risen Christ. And when we feel abandoned, we may comprehend the power of the promised spirit through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, Lord Jesus, as we come to this table, we proclaim your life, we proclaim your death, we proclaim the mystery of our confession. Christ has died, Christ is risen. Christ will come again in us. That we've been raised up and seated with you. That this eternal hope of Christ in us, we are forever bound together with you. So we thank you, Lord, for your body, for your blood shed for us, and we proclaim your life and your death as greater than any of our sin. Oh, God, awaken in us that we would, not only that reality, but that we would live as shadows, image bearers of the truth of who you are and who we are in you. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen.